Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Heidi Waterhouse, a technical writer, speaker, and developer advocate, and most recently a contributor to the book Docs for Developer, joins us. Heidi is currently a transformation advocate at Launch Darkly and joins us from Minnesota in the United States. Heidi Waterhouse, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? I think that well-maintained software is built to be modular and updatable and takes into account the fact that the people coming after you don't have the same context that you do. We always make a lot of trade-offs based on the context that we have, but we very seldom talk about what that context is. So other people come in and say, these seem like stupid trade-offs given the situation as it is now and not then. So the time that we spend saying, I made these choices because, is a really valuable part of making something maintainable. So it's interesting. The uh, I, like, I like the way you describe that there around they don't have the same context or predecessors on the projects or software that you're working on might have had or the constraints that they might have had and like the things that they went through. What are some ways that you've seen people do a good job of conveying the their rationale for approaching something and, and the way that they did given the what, where they were at that the business was at that point in time? It's hard to tell when you're making that trade-off because it is so natural. But I've even seen code comments that say, we did it this way because we didn't have processor power, or we did it this way because of network timeouts. Even as a code comment, that's really useful because when someone comes along two years later, they might not have the same, like maybe you're a startup that's hyperscaling and you got enough VC money to solve those problems. If you don't like put in the, here's why we did it, people will assume that it was a an optimal solution instead of an optimized solution. Very key distinction there. Thinking through some of my own projects over the years that I've worked on where you know, you're working on a, like a new feature or maybe, or let's say a bug fix for something and it's like a fire issue and, and you trade off. You're not even thinking, you're like, okay, I just need to put the fire out. We need to get some, you're trying experimenting different things and maybe you can't produce them in your local staging environments and you're pushing stuff out to production to see what happens. Like, does this work 30 minutes later? Nope, not yet. And you brought up like as a timeout example or retrying things because an API calls seemingly having some weird issues. And eventually it starts to work. And then you don't always necessarily have that time to go back as a team or even as yourself to go back, okay, what happened? Where do we go? Where do we need to change the documentation? What did, why was it this one weird code change or thing that we tried or a couple retries is now doing the thing? And like, great, it's working now. We'll come back to it some other day. Does someday happen very often? Almost never. Because our brains under stress are so different than our brains doing creative constructive work. And so once we've solved the stress, we sort of revert to our creative constructive brain. And there's almost like a firewall between those two, where when we're doing creative constructive, we can't think about the things that were panicking us. We can only think about like the logical, rational, worked through way to do things. And so I think that it's really important for us to, in the moment, do what we can. Like, 
I'm not much of a developer, but I was working on a a talk that was a choose your own adventure game that I built in Twine. And I was having a terrible time because there's like a starting page thing that you have to set. And it's not, it is documented, but it's not like, yo, dummy, set the starting page. Uh, And the place where that lived for a long time was my GitHub commits. It's like, Heidi, like actually used my name. So I'd pay attention. Heidi, you have to set the starting page. And I put that eventually in the readme, the GitHub readme, so that I would remember because I would come back to this project every six months and totally forget everything that I knew. So I don't think like we ought to do that, but I don't think we do. Every incremental step that we can make toward addressing ourselves directly in code is going to make our lives that little bit easier. It always feels like like needing, whether it be like a team needs a process or an individual contributor needs to have their own process for how they think through things. Have you seen people or yourself come up with ways, you, know, you mentioned you have like, oh, I might leave myself notes or little like hints of things in different places. So you might have a git commit message that's showing you something. You're like, oh, how did I do that? I think I remember putting that in a git commit giving yourself like a set of checklist items, like, okay, when we do these types of things, maybe refer to this little checklist of things that I should probably be asking myself, like to be nice to your future self. If you get that moment to be creative and think about like under a stressful situation, how would you ideally handle and consider that challenge resolved? I think is always the, like, what is the definition of done on putting out a fire? I think I would make it a fillable form like a a post-emergency fillable form that says, what was the symptom? What was the eventual solution? Should I remind you in three days to put this in the documentation? Or was it really a one-off? You know, because sometimes there are things that are like, we had to do this routing because of this really honestly one-time thing where we took down our data center, you know. One of the things that I really rely on heavily myself is templating. And if you put put in a form, filling out a form is much easier than filling out any kind of free form thing. Like if you think about how we understand what we're doing, it's the difference between writing an essay and writing a bug report. One of these is a lot easier. You know, on the show, I, I often ask people about their take on the metaphor technical debt and is that something that resonates in your world? Do you use it in your your day-to-day work? But beyond that, do you also believe there might be such a thing as like, say, documentation, technical debt or something in that realm? Oh, there's absolutely documentation, technical debt. The interesting thing about the technical debt metaphor is that we tend to regard technical debt as universally bad. And that's too simplistic. Technical debt is like student loan debt we incurred it in order to get through something. We have to pay it off, but it's not in itself bad. And so when we're looking at documentation debt, I think it's useful to be aware that maybe we didn't write this because we were still figuring out what we were doing. And once we figure it out, we need to write it down. But that's like, you don't have to pay your student loans until you graduate. (laughs) You know, one of the challenges that I've seen, just my own people on my own teams that I've been part of, or even myself, is especially when you work on projects that may may have 
predate you. Um, I work in an environment where most projects I work on were worked on for many years before they ever reached our team. And so there's always this tendency to be wary of removing documentation because you're afraid that someone spent the time to do it, but it can be, well, I'm, I don't know that this is still relevant anymore, but like that becomes like this weird thing where you, so you collect a lot of documentation. Maybe I've, I always feel like teams usually say that there's not enough documentation, but sometimes there's a scenario where there's a, there is documentation and you don't know if it's good or not. And then it, and nobody seems to be the owner of like removing things necessarily. So is that, that is something you've experienced? Oh yeah. So much like code, the best diff is a red diff. First of all, my core belief about documentation is that end-user documentation is a failure of end-user interface. Nobody wants to read documentation. They want to use their software. So everybody who is reading documentation is already a little bit pissed off because they haven't been able to do the thing they want to do. It's less true about inter-team documentation where you're trying to look up you know, API calls and responses, but it's still better to have just the right documentation than so much documentation that the signal is lost in the noise. And one of the things that I encourage people to do is make a day, a quarter, every half year, even every year, to go through and throw away documentation that is outdated. And if if just deleting it feels too permanent, you can archive it and and hide it. But if you let it keep accreting, it's going to drown out all of the search terms and all of the ways that you're going to be able to find something new. What other types of challenges do you think teams or developers have that might keep them from producing documentation? I think that when people think about producing documentation, they frequently have this paralysis of the blank page where they don't know where to start. And that makes sense. When you think about writing code, we're very seldom staring at a completely empty IDE. We're working from something that's previously known. We're integrating with something that we already understand. We're copying and pasting and tweaking things to make it fit our environment. We very seldom start with nothing. But when we talk about documentation, we frequently open a new document. And that's super intimidating. So when I'm trying to get people to write documentation, I want them to start with copying and pasting something that's similar to what they need. And that's one of the things that the docs like code does. Like, if you have open API generated output, you're 80% of the way to good API documentation. Something has already scraped all your calls and responses, and all you have to do is put the the logic and the theory around the facts. I think you're right with that, the paralysis of starting with like a blank page. Typically, like if you're going to create a new page of documentation somewhere and wherever that might be, we can. And I want to get into like best practices or at least what's your current opinion about where certain types of documentation might exist because I think that's very contentious between every team I've ever been a part of or ever developer I've been a part of. It's never super clear sometimes on that front. But do you kind of come up with ways to templatize that as well? Sure, and there are a few 
basic templates that everybody should start with. There should be a procedure template, like how do I do the thing? And there should be a an architecture template. What does this connect with? One of the ways to come up with those, because of course, writing a template also seems like it might start with a blank page, but not necessarily. Uh, you can either borrow other people's or you can look at a good example. Like if you have a developer who comes to you already good at writing documentation, then you can pull one of their procedures and templatize it, make it a library so that everybody can use it. So as I was alluding to, you know, I think sometimes I find it difficult when you work on, on some of the projects that I'm part of. So I'll just be not just generalize all developers, but personally, Robbie has issues with working on some projects where it's not very clear if I, I should be putting docu- I'm like, I, I'm working on something. I feel like this should probably, I should probably explain why it is this way. But then I'm like, I go look at the ecosystem of different where areas where documentation might exist in a company. It might be, there might be a wiki confluence somewhere, or there's a bunch of readme files. Uh, there's a doc directory within the code project itself, yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of different places this stuff could be. Um, but then you also know that sometimes every project or every company might have multiple repositories. And so it gets a little weird. We're like, well, can't just be in this kind of touch. This this thing that I'm working on kind of covers three different areas of the, the system. So where does that exist? And because like, I don't think it necessarily goes in each different project doc directory. So what are some ways that you've seen teams find like a healthy balance of like making it clear to know where to document, let alone be worried about the the blank page once you get there, but even like where should this even go? My number one solution is to hire a technical writer. In in the old days, the rule of thumb used to be one writer per 15 developers. One senior writer. Junior writer is more like one to 10. It is certainly not something that I see us doing now, We are making developers do a lot of their own documentation, but having someone whose job it is to say, here is where you put this documentation is really time-saving for everybody on the team because then you'll know where to go for it. If you can't convince the powers that be to hire you a writer or 10, the next best thing to do is to rely on the hypertextuality of almost everything that we're doing. Put in some links. You don't need to have the full documentation all three places, but you can say, to understand more about this, see here, and point to a canonical source. The other thing that's really important is to make sure that everything is search indexed. And somebody told me a thing about Confluence, which has made all of my struggles make sense. Confluence search defaults to or instead of and between search terms, my mind is blown. (laughs) Because Confluence is fine. Confluence search is terrible. Yeah, it is. I I was literally like a week and a half ago talking with my business partner and and because some developers were using some documentation. And I was like, that's not their, I think that's really old documentation. I'm like, I don't even know how you're like we have a whole new page that's been updated way more recently than that. And so we're trying to figure out what was going on there. I'm like, oh, I think, okay, I'm going to go on the old documentation, remove a few keywords. And I was trying to like make the old documentation page, because it wasn't ready to be archived because it still had some stuff in there and it couldn't just be copy pasted over to the new one. And I remember thinking, 
oh, so I got to go take out. I took out keywords from the old document so it became less relevant. And I'm like, this seems like such a wonky way to fix this problem. And then I added some keywords in the other one. I'm like, okay, now it's searched, like the person searched Confluence, which was great. They were trying to use the documentation, but they just found the old stuff. And I was like, that's that's unfortunate. So it's funny how that, good to point out the, uh, that it might be defaulting to or there. And that might need to just get some keyword training for the team to figure that out. My company has just started using a tool called Glean, G-L-E-A-N, and it is delighting me because it makes Confluence search usable and also searches across all of our other documents, like Google Docs. So I can just type in the thing that I'm like, I know I saw that somewhere. Where was it? That's nice. Do you know if it searches Slack channels as well? I believe it does. Hmm, interesting. I'll have to look that up and include a link to that in the show notes for people. We'll be back with our interview with Heidi in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, is there someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now, let's get back to our interview with Heidi Waterhouse. So is there a strong opinion that you've held with regard to software development that you've since changed your mind about? I think that I used to believe a writer had to be embedded in a team to be useful. And since then, I've realized that possibly the more useful thing is that a writer should be an educational resource for developers. And in a world where we don't have that one to 10 pairing, we need to be able to to extend ourselves in a different way. What's your take on creating like video tutorials for for technical related things? You have much of a something that I've been advocating as a shortcut at times when I'm working on things like, well, if I don't think I have like 20 minutes to write up something and I know I can do this in 90 seconds in and just fire up a quick little screencast recording, I can toss up the video on the Confluence page and be like, if you have some questions beyond this, I can come back later and, and, and answer them or something like that. I think they're a time bomb. I think that they are absolutely a fast and easy solution. However, they are so much more difficult to update and keep updated than documentation. For instance, if you do that, there may or may not be a transcript, probably not, right? And if there isn't a transcript, then your video isn't searchable, except for by whatever title you give it, but the contents aren't searchable. And so there are people who learn a bunch of different ways. I watched my kid teach himself Minecraft and then Unix administration, because I grounded him from using a Windows computer after like the fourth malware download. Uh, I'm like, welcome to Linux, my child. And he learned a ton of it from YouTube. That's kind of cool. That's that's super exciting. But as he's become a more savvy programmer, he finds it very frustrating because it's paced for whoever the intended audience is. And if you zoom through it, you can't 
like video is extremely of the moment. And so I avoid it whenever possible, just like I avoid screen captures. Screen captures, especially if you're saying like, change your settings to this, are deeply inaccessible because it assumes that somebody can see the screen capture. And they're very ephemeral. Who among us has not had these things change? But if it's in a screen capture, you don't know that you need to go back and fix it necessarily. No, that's it's true. It it's becomes a uh, inventory management thing where you're trying to group, like when you update something in the interface, like where else is this going to be impacted in our documentation, tutorials, what have you, that definitely becomes a challenge for, for, for folks as well. So another topic I wanted to dig in with you is that I know that you've been a speaker for a number of years. And so let's imagine there's some listeners uh, who have been curious about becoming a speaker, but might not know where to start and are not even sure if they know enough about a topic to go up in front of you know two to 100 people to speak about it at some point. First off, have you, did you go through anything like that at, at one point in your career? And if so, how did you overcome that? Oh, sure. When I started doing public speaking, when I started doing technical talks, I had done public speaking in high school, but it was like 15 years earlier. I was angry. Honestly, like 90% of my talks start with, I am mad about something and I would like to yell about it. This is, this is not what they tell you all the time. They're like, find something you're passionate about. Uh, for me, passionate translates to pissed off. So I find something that I'm angry about, whether or not I fully understand it. And then I dig into explaining why I'm upset and what I think could fix it. So my very first talk, my very first technical talk was called New Sheriff in Town, and it was a technical writing talk. It was about how hard it is to start as a technical writer, because Almost always when you are a solo technical writer, you walk in and there's this undifferentiated mass of previous kind of documentation and you don't know where to start. And so that talk was really, I, I learned so much doing it because I was trying to tell this story in a way that was sticky, in a way that was compelling so that people would change their actions. I think the best talks are ones that are very personal. I don't think you have to be an expert in something. I think it's actually really useful if you're not an expert in something, if you're exploring an idea, if you're like, okay, here's where I started. I didn't know anything about 3D printing. Here are the steps that I took. And the audience comes with you along on that journey because we all love those stories. We we all love the training montage. And that's really what a technical talk is, is at the beginning, I just fell into the water a lot. And at the end, I could stand on this pillar with one foot for, you know, an indefinite amount of time. Even if you're not to karate kid level, they want to come along with you. There are a lot of resources for early stage speakers and a lot of people who are pretty happy to mentor you. The place that I would start is small scale. So start at a meetup, which a lot of us are still doing online. Start at a brown bag at your company. Lots of companies have a little brown bag. We have one every Friday called Weird Talks. And we've done 
pole dancing and we've done what don't you know about Lithuania and <laughs> like it doesn't have to be technical it's just something that you're passionate about and then you get that practice I think it's really hard right now to be starting as a speaker partially because the audience really wants you to succeed and if you're doing a video recording you can't see that people are out there hoping you do okay. Instead, you have to figure out how like video cameras work, which is its own entire subsystem of complicated. Talking into the abyss of like seeing like there's a number of how many attendees are in your webinar or whatever you're hosting at the moment and, and having no clue if they're, is this, is this resonating or are y'all yawning? It's not, it's very much different than being in person for sure. Um, or, it's, it's a different, different reality, I think, for sure. Is it safe to, have you ever had a talk idea rejected? And then how did you? <laughs> so I'm a developer advocate. Literally, at least in the before times, my job was giving talks. And I would say my success rate at getting a talk accepted was extremely high at 25%. Okay, that's good. So everybody listening, 25% is high, and that's good. Um I know that it was interesting for me. I, I haven't given a talk in a, in a real world, like I say, real world. I'm meet space. <laughs> exactly. I'm not on the, the interweb um, in a while, but early on, because I was part of the early Ruby on Rails community at one point, and I was speaking at a lot of the conferences early on. Pitched a talk, and it was the first time I got rejected. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I'm just not. Maybe I'm not a good speaker, or and it discouraged me for a couple of years from doing it again. And I remember thinking, like, well, maybe I was just. Maybe they weren't that like thought like they maybe they didn't have enough people originally proposing talk ideas or whatever and I, I had to get over this weird little mental barrier of being like oh maybe I, they don't want to hear me anymore uh, I'm not a good speaker uh, but <laughs> it's such like anyways I'm just sharing that I've had to overcome that and like it's no it's okay Robbie just keep trying and I still get talks rejected um, and occasionally get them accepted and that's great but yeah it's a it's a it's a thing that happens and it's not the end of the world you just keep trying it. And I serve on a lot of conference paper committees or conference submission committees. And whether or not your talk gets accepted is partially about how well you write that and partially about what the committee is trying to steer the conference to be and partially whether or not somebody has just written an even better proposal on the same topic. There are so many variables that are not about your quality as a speaker. Oh, yeah, exactly. And they may not have never even seen me speak before or anyone listening. So that, there's a lot of variables there. The best ones, you don't know who the speaker is. You're just seeing the proposal. You know, you touched on like things you want to learn about might be a type of way to come up with topic strategies. Do you have other workflows or other little creative ideas about how you sort of think about things that you could write and or speak about? So... One of the things I like to do is clump my research. So there will be years that I give talks that are, at least to me, related to each other. So one year I did a, a set of four talks that was about how we deploy code, how we store it in source control, how we test it. They were all one big talk in my head. I just sliced off a part that was appropriate to the conference. 
This year, I've been working through the works of Lillian Muller Gilbreth, who was uh, an engineering pioneer 100 years ago. She did all sorts of really interesting work on, on ergonomics and tying that into code ergonomics and how we actually use things is really interesting to me. So I'm doing a bunch of research on basically the start of industrial psychology. But she's the reason that we have rational kitchens. Hmm. If you look at a Victorian kitchen, you could roller skate across it. Nothing made sense to where you stood and there was a big table in the middle. And she she put a pedometer, like sort of, on a person making a cake, a woman making a cake, and found out this woman walked two miles in her kitchen to make a cake, right? We can't imagine that because even our big, fancy marble kitchens, you can still turn around and reach the stove, the sink, and the fridge. Ideally. Yeah. And, and that work triangle is so much more ergonomic, but we never thought about it because we didn't think about women's labor as being expensive. It's great. Definitely have a yeah, definitely put show notes for that in there. You know, you think about the you mentioned the work triangle. Have you been able to see how does that kind of relate to a typical someone that's working in the software industries, whether that be their physical workspace or their mental model of where things are nearby? Yeah. So another Rubyist, Adam Cuddy, did a really great talk on this. I think it was RubyCon 2017 about basically code ergonomics. And he said that when he was training new people, he had them leave all of their windows in the same place and not just auto-generate wherever they happen to open, but deliberately move them. And he saw a real speed increase in people's comfort with code just based on where the windows physically were on their screens because they weren't searching and scanning all the time to find where the thing that they were looking for was. Curious about that. I've been doing a lot of pairing recently online with people, with coworkers, and it's been interesting to see how everybody has different layouts and different setups or, or seemingly no opinion of whatsoever about what their setup is like. And I'm like, how do you work like this? And like, it's just like, where's that other thing? Well, like make hide between different windows and you're like, and then realizing, cause I don't do a lot of as much programming as I used to. I don't feel like I have a super strong setup for that right now. And so I'm, I'm curious about like, how do I optimize my own environment? And then I change my monitor resolution and that's different. And then everything gets a little bit more chaotic and stuff like that as you figure this stuff out. So, mm-hmm. Because when you look at it, it's all context switching. Like every time you have to look for something, you're context switching and therefore at risk of dropping that house of cards that you've constructed in your head about what you're doing. True. So let's start. Quickly circle back to documentation for a little bit. Um, have you found there be any quantitative way to track if a team is producing and or maintaining a healthy amount of documentation? All metrics will be gamed, which is the real problem about doing any kind of quantitative research. Like if you pay people by lines of code, you get a lot of garbage code. And the same is true for documentation. I think that instead what you do is you put a test on it. And in the same way, your code has to pass and test to get in to get integrated. Your code has to have 
n fields of documentation form filled out in order to even be tested, making the documentation an integral part of whatever feature you're working on means that it feels a lot less, again, like context switching, like I've written the thing, now I must go write the documentation. And instead, the documentation is part of the thing. Can you part of your, your definition of done as a team? Yeah. You always think of that being like a challenge where people think of it, like even some teams like writing tests is considered like a nice to have if we've got time, like it works. I know it works because I tested it. And then you're like, well, what do you mean you tested it? Well, like I went into the browser and I saw that it worked and it did what it's supposed to. And you're like, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that is a form of testing. It's not automated that I can rerun it later. And then the documentation being part of that as well. I was also just realizing that we were recently having a conversation about our pull request templates and we've got details in there around, doc, uh, around testing, but I don't know that we've actually had a conversation around and where are the links to the revised documentation or some other little thing, just as another little, this is part of it. Like you, again, back to the templating being a valuable thing, probably is a good place to probably put something like that as well. It's painful for a team to move toward unit testing at this level. To, to say documentation is part of your unit test is a real transition and you're going to get a lot of extremely varied quality of documentation. But if you believe that it is important for other people to use your code, if you want it to be maintainable, all of your units have to be documented, even, even two lines. Coming from the Ruby world, one of the things that we often like to talk about is like, well, because the language is very expressive and you can be very verbose with it, like it's self-documenting, right? And so <laughs> uh, what's, what's your take on that? I think that Perl obfuscation aside, most languages believe that about themselves. But again, it goes back to the context of what you're doing. So something could be extremely clear in the code if you understand what the problem you're trying to solve is. But in the absence of that, that you may be looking at code and you can tell everything that it does, but you can't tell why. And then you're not going to be able to maintain the thing that actually needs to keep going. Always trying to convey the why something is. You can read something like, this is what it does. Like, it's very good at describing what is going on, but why is it doing and that? That's, that's context that's not always easy to, to garnish, uh, to pull out. And then see that you might look in your Git history or Jira tickets that used to be there and be like, what, what was the original request? And then realizing that like line of code change, it's gone through many, many variations and you don't even know why the feature was there in the first place or. Yeah. So I like to think of it as what, so what, now what? The thing itself, why it happens, what to do next. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals 
for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. So I want to get some advice for those listening. So let's imagine that there's a few software developers listening to this episode, and they recently joined a new-to-them team where some of the original team members are no longer around. I'm sure you've probably heard of this happening. And so there's very sparse documentation or maybe outdated documentation or questionable documentation at best, and a large product backlog of features and bugs that the product teams you know, hired them to come in and help work on, but there's the new hire is starting to feel like they don't have enough documentation to rely on and aren't noticing anyone else really speaking up about the challenge that they're facing. So they often not produce much, if any, new documentation themselves. But they don't want to live in that world forever. What, what would you advise them to do on how to take some next steps to improve that? I think the first thing I would advise is to find some allies. It's not easy to affect change yourself as a new person, especially. So one of the easiest places to find allies is technical support. Whoever supports your product has a strong opinion about how usable it is. And if you go to them and say, hey, how's this going for you? They're going to tell you where the pain points for users and customers are. And then you can start working on the most painful points. And this serves a dual purpose. You're actually addressing something useful and getting feedback on it. And you're diverting calls from people to tech support for help. And that's a little bit external documentation. But I think you'll find that on a team, there is always even just one person who's doing the support work, who's doing the work of this is broken, what do I do? And they know where the most broken, most painful parts are. So that's where I like to start my documentation journey because it's it's such a big win. If you start, I don't know, alphabetically, <laughs> you don't know if you're actually helping people out for a long time. But if you start with, the most broken things and fix those, then everybody has more faith in you so that you can keep working on things that are slightly less broken. That's some good advice there. Also, when it comes to like the challenge of like if there's not any existing patterns for where to document things within a team or it's very much not documented where, maybe it is and you can't even find that documentation, but do you have any strong opinions of where things should go into code versus like a readme file versus some sort of other shared space? I like putting things... It's difficult for me to distill this down because I have like dozens of years of this, right? I like putting things where people are going to read it. I think trawling through the code is not something that most people are going to do unless they have a reason to be in there. So if you put it in a readme or a release note, it's more likely that somebody is going to see it. Ideally, on a team, you would have some kind of wiki or Confluence or, or some kind of shared repository, but you don't always. You do always have some kind of meta information about the code. Do you find that it's helpful for teams to have something akin to a pull request process for documentation itself? Or do you think it needs to be kind of err on the side of like, just trust anyone that's going to publish documentation to do it well, and then not remove those barriers to slow things down? It depends on who your audience is. 
If you have a fast-moving product that doesn't have a lot of external consumers, yeah, you probably don't need pull request. If you're doing something in a regulated industry, you absolutely need that kind of traceability. As always, it depends, right? Yeah. <laughs> Think of your context there. So, well, great. I'd also like to take a quick moment to chat about a book that you recently contributed to, Docs for Developers. How would you describe the ideal audience for that book, outside of being for developers? The audience that we had in mind when we were writing this were developers who have been tasked with writing documentation or recognize they need documentation, but don't have technical writing support. So if you know you need to do it, how do you do it? Where do you start? What are the important elements? What was what what sort of topics within there did you most contribute to? So we all contributed several chapters. My chapters included heavy work on the writing, editing, and publishing. But we also have chapters on doing user analysis and making sure that things keep updated and how to do information architecture very lightly on how to structure documents. So within, within Docs for Developers, I know you covered a number of different topics yourselves and contributed some chapters to the book and definitely include links to that in the show notes for everybody. I think that was also published with APRESS. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Correct. So when it comes to working and collaborating with developers on a team, and so let's say one of your coworkers produced some documentation and you are needing to make some changes to it. Do you have any advice on how to overcome the worry of like, well, maybe I would phrase things differently than that person did, or I want to improve the documentation. In their head, I'm thinking improve because like the writing wasn't very good or it's very terse or whatever the the, the case might be, but how to be a good uh, peer editor, peer reviewer, and, and help improve the overall quality of the documentation at the same time? So I think it is a lot like doing peer coding where Somebody may express something differently than you would, but if the outcome is roughly the same, that's not where you should be spending your time. Doing meticulous, there should be a semicolon level edits is not useful because I promise you there are things out there in your code that are completely undocumented. So go spend your time on that. The thing that we want peer editors to be looking for is, is this factually correct did I include all the necessary information? Did I meet the template standards about how you move on from here? I'm sorry if their sentence structure is nails on a chalkboard to you. You need to let that go. And is that where using examples for like code samples and output and all the other details, that stuff tends to be less, say, subjective or maybe needing to think about how how good your your you know the language that you're writing that in is. Yeah, I think that one of the things that we want to make sure we avoid is hanging people up on whether or not they are a good enough writer. The answer is everything that they do is better than nothing. Everything that is correct is better than everything that is incorrect. It would be nice if it flowed naturally and had beautiful punctuation and everything like that. Again, that's something you hire a writer for. What I need developers to be able to do is feel like they can contribute. 
something else I wanted to quickly touch on was I don't I haven't done any research to see like if this aligns with any patterns that have been documented somewhere. But I found myself when I would work on writing some documentation or feeling like, oh, I kind of captured some ideas of how this thing works. I started thinking, I'm like, well, I don't there's not necessarily a FAQ section because I haven't got a lot of questions yet, but I started introducing what I think were questions people should be asking. So I started adding FAQs. Proact- I like to think of it as being proactive. The questions I think people should be asking if they're looking at this, like, well, how do I run this? Or how do I run the test for this thing? Or how do I, you know? And so as a way to break up a lot of heavy documentation or like a, like larger paragraphs, like then do this and this, it was more of like, here's like kind of the general concept. And here are some questions you might be asking if you're skimming the documentation to like, how do I run this one thing? Or how do I go test this thing? Where's the link to this thing? You know, just being very, very Q and a type of response thing. So that was a pattern that I started implementing a couple of years ago. I don't know if it's been super effective. It's, I like it that way as a way to produce content but I haven't got, admittedly got a lot of feedback on that. Is that something you've seen at all before? I have seen it. Uh, FAQ is the kitchen junk drawer of documentation, which is both good and bad. It means that there's a lot of expired rubber bands and also that it has the you know tape dispenser that you were actually looking for. I think that when you're writing for skimming, you should work to make that part of the structure of the document that you're actually writing instead of shoving all of the questions into this this catch-all where they may not be seen. So if I were writing that, I, I might include those questions, but I would include them as headings with answers and then maybe the thinking about why. I like that. I'll have to do some, some soul searching on that and see if I can make some amendments to that approach. So where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ideas about software development and documentation and writing and speaking online? My Twitter is all of the things all of the time. It's at Wired Ferret. I do post to my personal blog, HeidiWaterhouse.com, although not as often as I sometimes hope. And you can find Docs for Developers, our webpage about the book. Excellent. Thanks so much. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Heidi. Thank you so much for talking shop. All right. Thank you. 